Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. I'm your host today. Well, on all of these. This is a collaboration between my company and the uh, Fast Case, the uh, legal research juggernaut. <laughs> I just want to use that word. And, um, and Law Street Media. Also part of that group is Docket Alarm and, and other fine services. So today, uh, we're going to talk about labor law. You know, we've seen some uh, a formation of a, a modest union at Google and uh, union movement at Amazon, things like that. Um, unions are not what they once were. I think most people know that. It's, membership has been declining since 1954. The middle class has also been shrinking and income inequality, uh, that gap has been growing. The uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, which knows about these things, says that union membership in the U.S. has risen slightly since 2007, only slightly, to 12.4%. That was up only a couple of percentage points, not even full percentage points, just a fraction. I think it was 12.1 or something. So it's up slightly, but most of that is in the service sector in states like California. Just to compare, a few years ago, there were more than 14 million members, and that's compared to nearly 18 million in the 1980s, so quite a drop. Union participation is much higher in the public sector, where more than a third of employees are in a union. In the private sector, it's less than 6%. Excuse me, it's less than 6.5%. Let's get it straight, Tom. In addition to this minuscule growth, and uh, efforts in the tech sector. There have been some gains in union membership, but again, most of that's in the service sector. But the number of unionized employees in the manufacturing sector has declined. According to somebody who knows about these things is Heidi Scherholz. She's a senior economist and director of policy at the Economic Policy Institute. She wrote a nice article about this and said the basic facts about inequality in the United States are that for most of the last 40 years, pay has stagnated for all but the highest paid workers, and inequality has risen dramatically. She writes, quote, What is less known is the role the decline of unionization has played in those trends. The share of workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement dropped from 27% to 11.6% between 1979 and 2019, meaning the union coverage rate is now less than half where it was 40 years ago, end quote. She uh, goes on to write that this deunionization accounts for a sizable share of the growth in income inequality, uh, which is uh, around 13 to 20% for women and 33 to 37% for men. She writes that uh, if you apply these shares to annual earnings, People are now losing on the order of $200 billion per year as a result of erosion of union coverage. I'm sure somebody would dispute that. And I invite them to. The good news is that restoring union coverage, she says, this is good news, is therefore likely to put at least $200 billion per year into the pockets of working people. And, um, you know, they'll buy stuff with that. And we'll talk about this a little bit. Policymakers have introduced legislation in the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act. Uh, This would significantly reform 
labor law and would boost workers' ability to organize unions and collectively bargain. But you don't have to listen to me talk about this. I've got somebody who knows what they're really talking about. She's an attorney. She's a labor attorney. Catherine Hatfield with Hatfield Schwartz in New Jersey. Her practice focuses on representing private and public sector employers in all aspects of labor and employment law. Her expertise in employment law includes litigating state and federal cases on behalf of employers involving Title VII, the ADA, and a bunch of other things. I'm going to let you read her bio. But needless to say, she is uh, she's a real deal. Her labor law experience includes negotiating collective bargaining agreements, conducting grievance and interest, uh, arbitration hearings, handling and litigating certification, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she's done this before the National Labor Relations Board and the New Jersey Public Employment Relations Commission. Uh, she frequents, <laughs> she frequents, she does frequent. She lectures frequently on employment-related issues, and she also advises and represents business entities of all sizes with respect to formation, structuring, and, and governance. During the uh, interview, I made, this is off, off the topic, which sometimes happens, but during the interview, I made reference to a, a baseball player, and I can't remember now why I brought it up, but that's the ADD in me. I made reference to a famous baseball player whose name I could not remember. This is partly because I do not follow sports. Nothing wrong with sports. I just don't follow it. The, uh, the baseball player I mentioned was a Hall of Famer, a famous left fielder for the Boston Red Sox, and his name is Jim Rice. Uh, I was referencing an event in, uh, that took place in Fenway Park, the famous Fenway Park, in August 1982 in a game against the Chicago White Sox. A uh, four-year-old boy who was in the stands uh, was struck in the head by a line drive, and he started bleeding profusely. As people were watching, Jim Rice jumped up, ran to the boy's aid, picked him up, scooped him up, ran across the, uh, the field, into the dugout, and into the clubhouse, where the team's uh, physicians took care of the boy. He had a full recovery. So there. There's your irrelevant but really nice story. I'm sorry I didn't remember his name, but, you know, he doesn't know mine either. So with that, I hope you enjoy the interview with... Kathy Hatfield. So, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this today. As I said in the introduction, we wanted to talk about what seems like a little bit of a rise, a minor rise, if you will, of the of unions, and uh, we've seen some of that at uh, Google and talk about it at Amazon. Uh, a lot of that going on, certainly uh, in the, the pandemic age and the big tech age. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about it. Is this a, is this a rise? Or are we going to see more of this kind of activity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the trend that I'm seeing is that 2021 could be a big year for labor unions. Um, I haven't really seen um, this much um, activity or uh, discussion about uh, labor unions and um, the impact that they could have on 
trying to adjust the income inequality that we see between the haves and haves nots. And in, in many years, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, labor organization um, has declined uh, to its lowest levels um, since they started recording um, labor participation in 1983. Um, I believe that the numbers are somewhere around, you know, less than 10 or 11 percent of the workforce is unionized these days. And um, I think that the, the pandemic um, has really exacerbated the problems that uh, lower income workers uh, are having and the the, the inequality um, in uh, labor power uh, in some of these larger uh, companies and the pandemic has really shown us where those inequalities lay and have provided an opportunity for labor organizations to kind of come in and try and make a difference. Okay, what, what are some examples? Uh, how has the pandemic demonstrated the, the income inequality? I guess it's, it's things like people have to go to work, they can't work from home. That's right. So. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the the best example that I can give is Amazon. Um, you know, the, the the demand for Amazon products skyrocketed uh, during the pandemic because people weren't going out and they wanted everything delivered to their home. Mm-hmm. And but in order to do that, people have to be in these warehouse facilities, these distribution centers performing that job. I mean, those we don't have automated uh, distribution centers. So, you know, employees have to go to work. And uh, in the in the beginning of, of the pandemic, people, they were not being provided with appropriate PPE. And, uh, you know, that's where the uh, real distinction um, between people who could work at home and people who could not. Um, it was really the initial uh, lack of PPE that started to uh, draw uh, public ire. You know, you had uh, nurses um, who had to go into work. You had people who worked in distribution centers. You had food service workers, people who had to go into, um, you know, uh, uh, supermarkets mm-hmm. and and still provide services. Um, I, you know, I know from from my uh, own um, experience going into supermarkets that, you know, in March and April, um, all we were really doing, if anything, was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, you were really told not to even go out, but, you know, people had to go out in order to get groceries. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really until the summer where you saw you know, enforcement of masks and plexiglass and and limitations on the number of people who could come into stores and, um, you know, that type of thing. And, and that was really, uh, I think, uh, uh, necessitated by workers, mm-hmm. people who were, um, you know, refusing to perform those jobs unless they were adequately protected. Right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. The um, just a side note, to, you know, and there's obviously nothing funny about it, but people were kind of turning it on its head. There was a picture going around of a guy who 
fashioned a mask out of half of a grapefruit. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. The uh, yeah, then I also think too about lower income folks who rely on mass transportation, crowding into a bus and a subway and, and things like that. So it's um, there are a number of examples. Right, right, and you know, I mean, I I don't know whether because um, I haven't read a whole lot about the the steps that um, that larger retail establishments or grocery stores or even Amazon um, took to provide transportation for their workers. But, you know, you see um, the people who are on those front lines, and it's really in those areas that you see um, the unions coming in to try and try and uh, play a role in ensuring that these these individuals and these workers um, have appropriate protections. Yeah, it, well, that's a, a good segue to the, my next question. I grew up in eastern eastern Ohio, uh, south of Pittsburgh, really, and it's all, all steel mills along the Ohio River and uh, steel mills, power plants, coal mining and things like that. And unions were very strong when I was growing up. Um, but the unions of today, I'm wondering, are the goals of these groups different from the goals of unions in the past? You know, I think the overall goals are probably still similar, which is to try and um, get a, a, a decent wage for employees and also to ensure um, protections. I mean, you know, you go back into the 50s and 60s with the steel mills and um you know, obviously, the goal was to to get a good a good wage, but you know, really, a, a driving force was to ensure that these workers had adequate safety protections. They were working in really dangerous environments, and um, you know, in the fifties and sixties, the goal was to produce as much steel as you possibly could, and these employees worked around the clock in order to make that happen. And um, there was a lot of pressure on uh, you know, the factory managers to make sure that production kept up at rates that um, could be profitable for uh, the, the steel industry. Um, and a lot of times there was not adequate safety protections for those workers. So um, I think that the goal uh, back in the 50s and 60s was twofold. It was to ensure um, uh, good wages and also ensure adequate protections. And, and that included um, making sure that uh, there wasn't a, a crazy amount of overtime, that there were breaks for employees um, when they were working. Um, and, and today, I, I see those goals um, to still be very similar. Um, while, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there was you know, in the, in the, um, the latest stimulus bill, um, it failed to pass a uh, $15 an hour um, uh, wage. Uh, but, you know, you do see the larger um, companies, Amazon in particular, uh, stepping up to, to provide a, a $15 uh, hourly wage. Um, but, you know, there still are a lot of those smaller companies that are not doing that. Um, so while Amazon may be needing some um, 
some of those goals on the the wage front. Um, you know, there's still a desire on the part of unions to get in there and try and enforce some safety um, issues and, and to make sure that workers are protected in terms of um, the the uh, working conditions that they are are being subjected to um, during the pandemic and and even still I mean Amazon works 24 hours a day those those distribution centers are working um, 365 so it's important to make sure that there are still adequate workplace protections um, and so I, I do see the goals probably um, as as still being similar um, you know I think, that um, you know, worker the, that the unions are trying to branch out um, in the in, in the workforces that they are trying to get into. Um, so, for example, Google and, and and the gig workers they're they're trying to gain a, a foothold in in those areas. Um, but I think to to your original question is yeah, I think the goals are probably pretty similar. I don't know that. They change from decade to decade that dramatically. Mm-hmm. Now you, you brought this up, and I don't know if you, if there's more you want to say about it. But do you think unions can uh, can move us toward more social and economic uh, equality? Well, I mean, I think that there have been a lot of studies done on on that issue. Um, exactly. Um, and I think if you look at the data, it shows that um, states and communities where there is a higher level of unionization, um, those those communities enjoy higher economic growth and individual earnings. Mm. Um, I think the data very clearly supports that. Um, so, you know, to the extent that um a, a union can get involved. I think they do. I think they do uh, work towards um, trying to uh, dissipate some of that income inequality that we see so dramatically in in our nation today. And if you look overseas, um, you know the income inequality in Europe is is lower than it is in the United States, and that's largely because. Um, you know the the level of unionization in in Europe is much higher. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the Pro Act. What's this kind of a snapshot of the Pro Act, and what's the likelihood that yeah. it'll pass? Right. So the, the Pro Act is really um, designed to be the most dramatic uh, union friendly um, legislation since. Gosh, since uh, the NLRA went into effect, um, it is designed to um, make it easier for unions to organize and easier for um, unions to um, meet with uh, once they are organized um, to work on on behalf of people that they they uh, represent. It was passed by the House, but I think it faces a, a very uphill battle in in the Senate, especially since um, the filibuster is in place and they would need probably 60 votes in order to get that legislation passed. And I don't, uh, e- even though Biden 
Uh, President Biden touts himself as a, a very pro-union and uh, union-friendly president. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, he probably has a better chance of um, encouraging unionization or uh, pro-union dialogue on the outer edges. I don't. I don't see the PRO Act as something that that is going to be passed. And and frankly, with a, a number of other social issues that we deal with, including gun rights and abortion, I think you're going to see a lot of activity on the state level. I mean, that's really where the drive has to be. I mean, in in my state of New Jersey, New Jersey is a a very union-friendly state. A lot of the legislation encouraging unionization has been passed by our state legislature. So, you know, look, I am a I'm a I'm a management lawyer. I represent employers, but on a personal level, I do believe that the the income inequality that this this country is experiencing is just not sustainable. You know, the data shows that that you know unions have a real role to play in trying to remedy that. You see both perspectives from the employer perspective and the employee perspective. My father was in that position, and he was in management at a, at a titanium plant in Ohio, and he had a great relationship. In fact, the head of the union local was one of his best friends. And uh, in fact, I'm still friends with that gentleman today. Yeah, I guess it's like, like a lot of things. It's about balance, isn't it? It is. I, I do a lot of private sector work and a lot of public sector work. And as I said, New Jersey is a very union-friendly um, state. And so a lot of my public sector clients are are uh, unionized. And I have great relationships with my counterparts on the other side. And I think it's really important to be able to maintain those relationships and um, and work with work with unions. So I do. I see. Bo- I see both sides of the coin. What would you say are the the biggest impediments to organizing unions? I think the biggest impediment is probably a, a belief or the uh, portrayal of unions that they they don't do anything. When you have a, a, a non-unionized workplace and a union comes in to try and organize, obviously the the employer is going to do whatever it can to prevent unionization because from an employer perspective, um, when a union comes in, there's a feeling of a loss of control that they now have to share management responsibility and they can no longer um, implement policies or or work rules without having to consult with the union. So they're going to do everything that they possibly can to avoid having a union in place. And some of the tactics that they will uh, employ are things like, you know, you're going to be paying all of your wages towards union dues. You are not going to get anything. We're no longer going to be able to give you the wage increases that we want to give you. We're no longer going to be able to give you any bonuses. So I think that there's just a a negative perception among employees that unions are not going to have a positive impact on my work environment or my wages. So I think I think that it's really that perception that needs to be overcome. 
I, I think, yeah, I think that's probably really the main driving force. You know, I mean, look, uh, you read some of the stories about um, how some of these large employers go about combating um, organizing drives. And, you know, that's scary to people. Um, you know, people who are working in these in these positions, they are vulnerable and they do not want to lose their job. I think that's probably the biggest impediment uh, towards increasing uh, unionization. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is sponsored in part by Fastcase Legal Research. For over 20 years, Fastcase has been providing industry-leading tools to solo lawyers, law firms, and bar associations across the country with the goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. Fastcase is a proud partner to over 50 national, state, and county bar associations as a free member benefit. Visit fastcase.com or email sales at fastcase.com to learn if your bar association offers free access to Fastcase. Are there are there any instances where uh, a union being formed at a company or an industry turned out to be really good for that company or that industry? I would venture that there are many many companies and and many industries out there that have have benefited from having uh, an organized workforce. Unions can help lead to a stabilized workforce, and a stabilized workforce enables an industry um, to have predictability, and predictability generally can lead to greater profits, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle, um, and I've always felt both as a business owner and as somebody who represents management that, you know, a happy workforce is a productive workforce and a productive workforce is is a profitable company. So um, I think that there are probably um, many companies out there that have benefited from having a union in place, but it's not something that you really hear about because that's not something that is really newsworthy, right? We <laughs> only we only publicize um, really negative or salacious stories because that's what generates readership or listenership. A, re- a really good answer. You also you also got into another issue that's interesting to me. And it's around uh, news and how much we gobble up negative news. And I, I saw something, some headline that CNN's ratings viewership recently just plummeted over the last four years. I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> I'm right, not, right. When you're afraid. <laughs> you're going to tune in. Right. I saw that same thing. I saw that same statistic that, you know, now that, that uh, Donald Trump is no longer president, um, the news, news consumption has gone down precipitously. Um, and yeah, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I, I tend to um, take my news with a grain of salt. I would prefer to focus on the positives. So, for example, good, this is a good example. How many people have gotten the vaccine um, and and uh, how many people are uh, have have not experienced any negative side effects instead of you know, oh, well, this vaccine um, has had this side effect or this efficacy rate. I, I just I think that there needs to be a reframing 
of um, how we approach news, because I think that that how the news is framed affects us, you know, in in our daily routine, whether it's how we we address income inequality in this country or racial inequality in this country or hate crime. The, The focus on the negativity simply breeds more negativity and division. You know, if there were stories about how a union came into an organization and lifted that organization in different ways, whether it's, you know, employee wages or or employer profitability. I, I think, you know, I don't know how many people would look at those stories, but I don't know about you. But, you know, when I when I see a, a good news story, I absolutely read that. I recently came across. I'm not. A, I'm not a big sports fan, and I so I, I don't know the name of this famous baseball player. But there was some. Uh, there was a story of a baseball player who a ball hit a kid in the you know in the uh, one of the fans, and he kind of stopped what he was doing. He went over and picked the kid up and ah. carried him to the dugout where they have doctors and everything. Um, it's a fam- oh. famous picture of this guy with this. Boy in his arms, uh, taking him. It's it's it's, it's a tearjerker. I mean, I, it really made an impression on me. And I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name because I just don't follow right. baseball. But we need to make good news somehow more alarming. <laughs> well, right, right. I mean, I think if there's a way to make good news something that that people latch onto, and you know, they pay that forward. Yeah, I think I think you'd see a, a happier group of people. But listen, I mean, I I I, I recently had um, my first uh, dose of the vaccine, and as I was standing in line, um, you know, I've never seen a group of happier people <laughs> in my life. It was as if they were getting their first gift. On Christmas Day, um, they were they were ecstatic. Yeah. Um, and you know, you wish you could bottle that up and just sprinkle it over everybody. It was um, really uplifting. I, I have so. been I've been hearing about vaccine euphoria from people. My mother in law, yep. she said, just changes your outlook. It's oh my gosh, I have protection. Um, it now. does. So I, you know, it in does. terms of good news, I, I I just imagine this graph where every person is represented on the map by a dot and every person that gets a vaccine, how many people are now not going to be, uh, are not are now not going to contract the virus because one person uh, got it. Oh, you know exactly. what I mean? It's like how many exactly. lives were saved by that, you know? I mean, how about that? Instead of, you know, the front page of the New York Times showing how many deaths there are and yeah. whether the, the trend is going up or down. I mean, at this point, I would rather know, I'd rather have a clicker of how many people have gotten vac- vaccinated and, and how many people that saves. What does this have to do with unions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can bring it back. I, I think that if there's a way to... Um, reframe the narrative about the benefits um, of uh, of unions. That I think maybe um, there could be a different discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and and even even if the there isn't a discussion about the benefits of unionization, 
You know, the, the issues that unions try to bring to the forefront, you know, they're really important issues. If we truly value um, those people who are on the front line, the grocery workers, the nursers, the people in the transportation industry, the, the, the people, the cleaners, the people who have been cleaning, if we really value those people, then we, we owe it to ourselves to you know, figure out ways to make their working conditions um, as as good as we possibly can, and whether that's making sure that they um, have the the protection equipment that they need or the wages that they need in order to be able um, to uh, provide a decent um, life for them and their families. I think um, you know those are uh, the issues that we need to be paying attention to and whether or not, you know, a union is certified in, you know, Amazon or Google or, you know, a, a uh, grocery chain, um, you know, it's really the issues uh, that are important. And those are the issues that we need to be talking about. Um, and I think, I think that that is really um, President Biden's focus is he really is trying to focus on um, the the issues that matter to, uh, you know, the majority of the people in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, you tied it in beautifully. I think that, um, as you said earlier, it's some, one of the obstacles is the perception. And a lot of that perception is fueled by what uh, what is covered in the media about unions. So, so I'm going to leave it there. So, Kathy Hatfield, thank you very much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. You're, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Once again, you've been listening to Catherine or Kathy. Can I call you Kathy? Hatfield. Catherine Hatfield at Hatfield Schwartz. Uh, she is a labor law attorney who practices with her partner, Stephanie Schwartz, who's an employment law attorney. So I want to thank her very much for doing that. So once again, this is Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences for the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production with Fast Case and Law Street Media. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas, or want to participate in this webinar, this is not a webinar, it's a podcast, Tom. Get it straight. You can write to me at tom.hagee at litigationconferences.com. Thanks for listening today.